lot of people say Jesus was born in Nazareth in whatever BC, right? Zero, is that how that works? Anyway, I disagree with them. I think Jesus was born in the woods in Tennessee in 1959. That was Burt Reynolds in a clip from the 1991 Ken Burns documentary, The Special Dead Player. Like Burt said, Opie White was born in 1959. The son of a dairy farmer, Opie grew up doing two things, eating cheese and loving his big brothers. From a neighbor that they interviewed for the documentary. Well, you could go down past the farm and you'd be guaranteed to see about 10 or 12 cows in the field and about 10 or 12 of the boys. And they're just milling around, kind of looking the same, same size as the cows and everything. The cows would bend over to eat some of the grass, and sometimes the humongous white boys would bend over and eat some grass. Except the littlest one would be running circles around, kind of like a sheepdog. He would herd all of his brothers and the cows all as one, you know, clump, and they'd go feed in the barn. Heck of a sight. The farm was very successful. With all the humongous white boys lending a hand, the farm was set up to be a dynasty. Nothing could ever get away from that farm. Not until... The Vietnam War called the white boys away from that farm for the first time in their lives. This is where it gets weird. Starting in 1963, the white boys went over one by one to fight for their country, and one by one, they were almost immediately killed. In a letter we found on Pinterest, Opie's sixth oldest brother, Grang White, wrote a letter to his youngest brother lamenting the death of his family. Quote, Listen, Opie, it turns out, once we get there, that the thusness of us when we're there were put in a spot where it's easy to get killed. In Vietnam, Everybody that seen me told me that it were the white spot where I was at, where each and every of our brothers did get killed from a mile away by a Vietnam man with a good gun with glasses on it. Tonight is my first night here, but I think it will be fine as they gave me a shirt that makes me look like a tree. I thunk. The letter ends there as the K trails off surrounded by dried blood. That's because Greg died. The longest a white brother survived at the white spot was only a week and a half. Did it have something to do with their enormous size? Perhaps. Or maybe it was because every time they heard a noise in the woods, they would stand straight up because they thought it was a tree saying hello. Either way, there would always be a white family funeral that the town would go to every year. It almost became a kind of a town cookout. And that cookout is where the Reverend first met Opie. From his autobiography, the Reverend recalls first meeting Opie White. Reverend, boy, you're swinging that branch like the archangel Gabriel himself, wielding the fiery sword bestowed on him by Christ. Opie, golly. Reverend, I run a baseball team, and the Lord wants you to come play for me in Nashville. You ever been to Nashville? Opie, is that in Vietnam? Reverend, no, son, that's a city in Tennessee. Opie, Oh, like Murfreesboro, a city, the place where you got buildings that are so close together they could kiss. Reverend, son, I don't claim that I am speaking for God, but he is speaking through me, and he wants you in Nashville. And so, Nashville's where Opie went, but not at first. 
Opie spent the next four years under the tutelage of the Reverend, painstakingly learning the basic rules of baseball, and also catching up on elementary education, things like shapes and numbers and why schools should still be segregated. When Opie turned 19, or as close as they could guess to him turning 19, they sent him, who had never left the town of Hoot for Larry, up to Gary, Indiana, to play for the Pickers AA affiliate, the Gary Johnsons. He would only be there for one month. Back in Nashville, the Pickers had what seemed to be their annual slow start. Fans had taken to referring to the first month of the Pickers season as horse-ass April, implying they were a racehorse that came out of the gate ass first. With that, the Pickers fall to two and 16. Boy, I tell you, they should be called the Nashville Rush because just like Rush, they can't get any hits. Almost immediately, the Reverend began berating Cedric Entertainer with phone calls, instructing him to pull up the damn kitchen sink and get that simple boy from the miners. Cedric refused the Reverend several times, stating that the boy will bring pain and suffering to this team, this town, and himself. I beg you not to make me do this. But the Reverend continued his demands and Cedric finally relented. So on Cinco de Mayo, or as they called it in Nashville, WAP night, the Pickers officially called up Opie White, who in just 20 games with the Gary Johnsons had hit 445 with 12 home runs and 31 RBIs. Now you might be asking, if Opie was playing so well, why did it take the Pickers that long to call him up in the first place? Well, apparently they tried to call him up sooner, but Opie was too afraid to take the train because he thought all trains would pass through Vietnam. Eventually, the Pickers were able to trick Opie by leading him into a station and onto a train by dangling a carrot in front of him. Like, like a horse? Yeah, just like a horse. With Opie, the Pickers went on a legendary tear throughout the regular season. For the first time in their history, the team was good, which led to promotions such as this. Hey, Opie, why you laying down? Don't you know we have a game tonight? Sorry, Elliot, I'm all tuckered out. Time for me to count some sheep. Not now, Opie. You need some strength. And quick. Why don't you eat some of this here holy cow white cheese? White like me? Like my last name? That's right, Opie. This cheese is strong, full of protein, and sits in you like a sack of bricks. And if you want to hit homers, you'll fill up on this. Wow, I do feel strong. This cheese is a home run. You might recognize the voice of the other guy, Elliot Van Leer. You may have seen his supporting roles in 70s crime movies like Steal Till You Die, Crime at the Bank, and Corvette Williams 2: The Tallahassee Trick. And Elliot Van Leer found himself on the mound for the Pickers in Game 2 of the World Series, playing against his former team? Former Gambino Elliot Van Leer loved the Lower Manhattan lifestyle, but it did not love him back. A lot of people said that his league average pitching was below his talents, and he was distracted by his celebrity girlfriends and walk-on roles in Burt Reynolds movies. This from an interview of Burt Reynolds for Hustler Radio. Oh yeah, me and Elliot go way back. We both played ball at Florida State. We also played sports there too. <laughs> Some of my best memories are him and my roommate at the time, Lee Corso. That's real, by the way. Burt Reynolds' roommate at Florida State was Lee Corso. Look it up. We are dead serious. How crazy is that? And Elliot always wanted to be in the movies. So when I started booking roles, I always made sure there was a line or two in there for Elliot. We had a good time on set. I remember when we were shooting Corvette Williams 1. I was telling him how I was 
Jade, my co-star Sally Fields, and Elliot looked me right in the eye, and he said, Bert, I'm dating Sally Fields. And we laughed and laughed. I love that man. More than I've ever loved anyone. Elliot spent more time in the tabloids than he did in the sports section, with his very public relationships with Sybil Shepard and Farrah Fawcett drawing him a lot of scrutiny. Fed up with that and his poor performance on the mound, he was traded for four tickets to see Elvis at the Grand Ole Opry. He just never seemed to care about baseball until he was traded to Nashville. In an interview with Hustler Radio, Well, I was pissed, you see. I never really cared much about baseball. I just played it because it helped me get cocaine and ladies. But when I was traded to Nashville, well, that woke up the beast. I called up Bert and I told him, Bertie, Bubby, you're going to have to count me out of bootlegger Martin. I got a score to settle. And settle it he did. After going 19-5 with a 2.76 ERA, he came into Game 2 playing the best he ever had. These days, everyone needs a website. Don't you need a website, Will? Yes. Sometimes at job interviews, employers will ask for my website. And I'll get flustered and just say RuneScape. But what's the number one problem with designing a website? It costs too much money, Nate. Exactly. Nobody has like 70 or $80 lying around. I wish there was a service where I could get a personal website made for cheap. Well, you're in luck because of this week's sponsor of A Closer Look, Bobo Sport, who will design you your very own website for only 482 rubles. Wow, that sounds amazing. But is there a catch? Yes, a big one. Bobo Sport will design you a website that has all of your information and samples of your work visible on the homepage, but it will also be a website where Brazilian teens can illegally stream the NBA. Many website builders will make your website look sleek and efficient, but for the cost of a broom, Bobo Sport will make yours look shifty and like it's full of malware. How will this work? In an email from Bobo Sport chief web designer Pavel Gropnik, there will be many MILF ladies who want fuck on screen, yes? They will all be one kilometer away, but it say this to everyone. Secret internet trick. Bobosport pioneered the technique of putting an X over an ad on the corner of the screen, like right where you can see it, but your mouse can't reach it because it's under 10 bigger ads, and every time you click it, like 10 more pop up. Pavel calls this the Russian doll. What you first see, normal doll. Open her up, smaller lady, and you think, very good, very funny lady inside of lady we are done yes incorrect crack open second lady even smaller child now now you think not so funny where this end this must be over the man must crack three more ladies before he get the grape and we do the same with advertisements to learn more go to bobosport.mx.porno and to see how good your website could look check out my website natefisher.bobosport.mx.porno Van Leer got off to a hot start, striking out the side in the top of the first in nine pitches. The Pickers' offense woke up after a dismal game one, as Bob Clunker and Trey Lunch led off with back-to-back homers, off of the Gambino's famously talented but very nervous starter, Alan Woody. From a Game 2 post-game press conference, Okay, okay, I know I had a bad game, but it was very hot down here in Nashville. I mean, it's so muggy, the ball was slipping through my fingers. And with my asthma, it felt like I was breathing in knives. And what's with the crosses? Do we need to have that much Jesus at the baseball stadium? I thought I was going to get pulled from the game and replaced by Barabbas. Game two was a harsh realization for Gambino's fans, who expected a very short and tidy four-game sweep. 
And that's the psycho for Opie White, and it's only the sixth inning, son of a bitch. If Buddy doesn't go out there and get that four-eyed fucking Jew back to Goldman Sachs. John Drama got his longest ever suspension for that comment, one and a half games. But meanwhile, Opie White seemed to be playing with the Angels under him. In the inning after hitting that cycle, he went on to rob a home run from Mr. Clean off the right field fence. The only bad moment in what would be a delirious night in Nashville came during the seventh inning stretch. America's hottest band, Groovy World, took the stage, permanently embedded in center field, and proceeded to play, well, their own version of a classic baseball song. And now the classic song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, will be played by... Who in the Sam Hell is... Groovy World. Who's ready to groove, Nashville? All right. The voice you're hearing is Groovy World frontman Money McDonald's, who is heard in this VH1 Behind the Music episode. Yeah, baby. Groovy World was me. Drummer Octopus Cohen, you know why they called him that? Because it looked like he had eight arms when he drummed. And I was the first person to call anyone playing the drums an octopus. I invented that trope. And our bass player, Michael Imperioli, I didn't have a nickname for him, but he was a beautiful angel. Groovy World's rendition of Take Me Out to the Ball Game would go on for 11 minutes. Well, baby, I just love baseball. And Take Me Out to the Ball Game, that's not... You gotta listen to the lyrics to that song. It's not a request, the Cracker Jacks. It's a demand for an experience. And that's what I wanted to give the good people in Nashville, Tennessee. An experience. Bummy Cracker Jacks, bummy a Kit Kat, bummy a Tootsie Roll, let's go to the cotton candy machine. At this point, garbage was raining down onto the field. The players for both teams were treated to their respective locker rooms. Opie White was being spoon-fed cheese to keep his strength up. Mr. Clean, upset with the bands and his team performance, broke every single bat in the locker room in a fit of baseball rage. Buy me oil, buy me a war, sell me a war, Mr. President, buy me death, buy me love, buy me hate, buy me heaven's gate. At this point, the fans tried to rush the band, but the Reverend ordered the Brethren to protect Groovy World at all costs. Eventually, the game just started again, with Groovy World continuing to play into the eighth inning. The Reverend was feverishly committed to his theory that you should always have at least two things going at the same time in your venue, because it meant double the revenue. One time, the Pickers played the Dodgers while the Reverend screened the Exorcist above the scoreboard. Roger Ebert called it a disgrace to both mediums. The Reverend famously had a James Brown concert during a game against the St. Louis Cardinals, which was one of the first publicly integrated events in the state of Tennessee. As the Reverend put in his speech, Don't get me wrong. I am absolutely a racist. However, there is a lot of money to be had in cramming as many butts of all colors into your venue. I don't care what color you are as long as your money is green. I do care what color you are if you're trying to date my daughter. But that's not as important to me. That was from his 1971 acceptance speech at the NAACP's Humanitarian of the Year Awards Dinner. The long performance by Groovy World forced the Pickers to pull Van Leer from the game during the seventh inning stretch. However, there were still some curious moments left in game two. 
Opie White should have had another triple. But mysteriously, while rounding second, he staggered, and in a daze crawled back to the bag where... Now what in the hell is he doing? He's going to sleep on the bag. He must be dog tired. He's curled around that bag like a cat in that spot on your living room floor where the sunlight comes in. As we say in Texas. After the game, Cedric Entertainer had this to say. He was tired. That's all he said. Everyone understands that. How many men have used their last breath on this earth to say, I'm tired. I'm not sure what my last words will be or whether I'll have any. Opie should be good to go for tomorrow. After a 1-2-3 eighth inning from reliever Mutter Liriano, it looked like the pickers had game two in the bag, but in the bottom of the ninth, closer DSA Beauregard walked the bases loaded. And with two outs in the game on the line, Gambino right fielder Sleepy Goodnight walked to the plate. What follows is one of the quirkiest plays of the whole series. Here's the call. Well, it's tenser than a turkey's back hole here in the Holy Cow Stadium as the bases are loaded. Beauregard delivers a pitch and Goodnight launches it into the evening sky. How far will it go? Danwich is running sandwich. Danwich, sandwich. Danwich calls off sandwich. Sandwich calls off Danwich. They said it at the same time. They jinxed each other. Now neither of them can talk. They're communicating by waving their arms, but they're still headed back to the fence and Sandwich leaps and Danwich leaps and they collide head first and there's blood and Sandwich has caught it they both seem fine sandwich has jumped into danwich's arms sandwich is holding on to the ball danwich is holding sandwich like a bride they are running into the infield as if they are crossing the bridal threshold and danwich will soon be deflowered pickers win 5-1 you ever seen two guys run into each other head first and still catch the ball never and we cannot emphasize enough how hard they ran into each other. After the game, Sam Dandwich and Dan Sandwich were so concussed that they each put on the other's clothes and drove home to be with the other's wife and kids. There is a famous picture taken of the Pickers locker room after the game. Players hugging, crying, laughing in the showers. Grown men in a state of pure joy. But in the back right-hand corner of the locker room, a man stands facing the wall like the guy from the Blair Witch Project. A man who has seemingly no idea who or where he is. A man who, in five days, will be dead. That man, Obi White. Next time on A Closer Look. <laughs>